Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and we have another great interview in store for you guys today. I chat with one of my good friends, Dr. Sean Green. She is a senior director at Umoja Biopharma here in Seattle, and Umoja is focused on developing next-generation cancer immunotherapy treatments for cancer patients. It's really exciting work. We talk about that and some of Sean's background and her work at other companies, as well as some of the mentoring that she does, including Women in Bio and Wings for Growth. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Sean Green. If you have been liking our content and listening to the podcast, please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I also want to mention that the Sponsor for this episode is Kendall Investor Relations. So for all of our budding biotech entrepreneurs that are listening out there, if you need some help navigating the process of interacting with investors, we recommend that you reach out to Carlo and his team. The link is below. Thank you also to our patrons, AJ and Fani. We really appreciate your support. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Sean Green, and thanks so much for listening. Great. Well, I'll just start out by introducing you. So today I'm excited to welcome my friend, Sean Green. She is a senior director at Umoja Biopharma here in Seattle, Washington, and she leads the translational research and development at Umoja. She recently gave a talk at ASGCT speaking about some of Umoja's exciting research, and I'm excited to jump into some of that today with you all. So welcome, Sean. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've been following your podcast and I love them. Awesome. Yeah, I know. I've been bugging you to uh, do an interview for a little while now, and I'm excited to finally sit down and chat and, and share some of your insights with our listeners, because I think... It's been a joy to work together since you moved to Seattle a few years ago now. And, you know, over the years, I've gotten to see how you work and, and how you approach science and how you approach your work in biotech. And I think you're also a great mentor to a lot of uh, young women out there. So I want to talk about some of those uh, aspects of your career as well over the course of this interview. Let's jump in with graduate school and kind of how you got your start in, in science and academia and what led you to pursue a career in this field. Okay. Yeah, that's a good place to start. I did my PhD at UCSF in the lab of Martin McMahon. And before going to UCSF, I vowed to never research in an organism that's larger than a single cell. I was really, I really love animals. I really didn't want to work with them. I understood that research in animals is important, but it wasn't for me. Um, and my undergrad was all biochemical and structural. But when I got to UCSF, I was very interested in cancer as a problem. And um, Martin McMahon was the first lab that I rotated in. And he specialized in genetically engineered mouse models that could really recapitulate the human disease with all of its complexities. He's the one who engineered the, v6, the BRF V600E mouse that's used to model human melanoma. And he was a close collaborator with Tyler Jacks who developed the KRAS G12D mouse. Anyway, long story short, I fell in love with mouse models as a tool to understand cancer development and to try to 
block its progression and, and cure cancer. And that really launched me into a really great space in drug development, which is preclinical development. And my job today is, is precisely that, is to, is to be very creative about how best to model human disease and cancer in mice so that we can accurately develop drugs that would affect humans, not mice at the end of the day. But that's my um, graduate work. It was all entirely in mouse. And, and the topic that I researched was lung cancer at the time. Interesting. And so from graduate school, did you go on to do a postdoc? And what type of research were you doing in your postdoc? I skipped a postdoc. I don't have um, the most linear trajectory of, in my life um, in general. I was born in Israel and went to the military and then traveled. So by the time I got my PhD, I was already quite a few years older than everybody else. And I felt a sense of urgency to get into industry and do something practical that will affect people. I, I didn't want to stay in academia anyway. So I skipped a postdoc and I was very fortunate to have my first job out of my PhD at a company called Eureka Therapeutics in Emeryville. At the very dawn, so to speak, of the CAR-T immunotherapy space. What led you to Eureka? Were you considering different options or was there a particular scientist that you were kind of following there? It, the actual starting was location. I was living in Emeryville at the time, getting my PhD at UCSF in, in, the, in, in San Francisco and commuting. Uh, and that was kind of a bitch, to be honest. So I had a certain radius uh, in which I was looking for jobs after my graduation. I really didn't want a huge commute to like Genentech or south of the city from Emeryville. And this company, Eureka Therapeutics, was really below the radar at the time, but they were very, they were right there in Emeryville. Um, and they were doing some type of immunotherapy, even though it wasn't very clear. Um, they had an opening, so I applied, thinking this, you know, might be a good fit. I got promptly rejected, but a little bit after that, serendipitously, the, C the CEO of Eureka was giving a talk at UCSF. I was still at UCSF wrapping up my PhD. And before he came to give that talk, I got some advice from friends about how to revamp my CV and how to present myself. It's a shame that you don't really get a lot of career advice in academia. I guess that's a separate topic, but um, <laughs> I did get some advice from friends that were in industry. And I went to that talk, which was about the NYESO targeting at CAR T-cell therapy that Eureka at the time was working on. And I went up to him. First of all, I asked a lot of great questions during the talk. And then I went up to him and gave him a fresh version of my CV. And lo and behold, they, they called me up and interviewed me and, and eventually hired me. So it took a couple of tries, but I got hired as a research scientist at Eureka. And it was really, it was 2015 and it, CAR T-cell therapy was not very well researched or understood at the time. And I was very fortunate to be involved in that. I knew about CAR T-cell therapy since Carl June gave a couple talks at UCSF, but it wasn't a mainstream topic. I was interested in cancer immunotherapy in general and cell therapy became a really interesting passion for me while I was there for a few years at Eureka Therapeutics developing CAR T-cell therapies for hematological targets and also solid tumor targets. I want to take a step back because you mentioned that some, some of your friends gave you career advice. Can you share what some of that advice was? Yes, I definitely um, share this a lot with people that come to me from any stage in their career and ask for advice about their CV 
or how to present themselves on paper. One of the first steps to get in the door is how you present yourself on paper. And then of course, there's the second step, which is if you do get to meet with people, how you, what kind of questions you ask, how you present yourself in person and also networking and all the connections that actually help people get a job. But my CV was just lame. There is a way to create a good CV and, and there wasn't any, nobody taught me that at UCSF. So now I, I do that for a lot of people. I think there's maybe more understanding of what a good CV looks like these days, um, but that's not something that a, um, a graduate student is exposed to. Now, after years of being in industry myself and reviewing a lot of resumes, you, know, you, you accumulate that knowledge and you know how to present a good story on paper. Um, so that was the first step. And also the LinkedIn profile, which in 2015 was not yet a huge thing. And I was reluctant to do this kind of networking because I was kind of against social media. I didn't have a Facebook account. It's one of, I don't know, it was different. <laughs> but I was convinced by somebody that a LinkedIn account is a really important way to, to present yourself professionally. And that was also a, a really good thing because I started networking with people and, and that created a, a certain profile that really helped me. Awesome. Well, I, I, I commend you on the perseverance there. I think it, you know, especially at certain points in our careers, rejection can be really challenging to overcome. And I think it's a, it's a great, great experience that you were able to do that and really Put your best foot forward after after getting that initial job rejection and and end up at Eureka. So you were involved in some really pivotal work at Eureka. I've heard this over the years and through what you've shared with me. Whatever form you can share, can you walk us through some of what you're doing? And I mean, because Eureka is really one of the key players today in the cell therapy space, and I think have, have proven themselves in the clinic in certain ways and are involved in a lot of important collaborations today mm -hmm. with, with a number of other leading cell therapy companies. So can you walk us through some of your experience there and what you were working on? Yeah. So Eureka at the time was a startup, but a very kind of a long-term startup. They were already six years in existence, but they started really small and really slow. I was employee 24. And after I joined, there was quite a, a growth because they were at the preclinical stage with these CAR-T uh, products. But prior to that, there were an antibody, an antibody engineering company. And that's what they did the best. They had an amazing alpha phage display process that, and they could identify antibodies that bind peptide MHC complexes, which is a quite a unique uh, and challenging antibody to develop that recognizes um, an intracellular peptide presented by an MHC class one molecule on the surface of cells. That was one of their differentiators at the time. But they had a few immunologists that were also developing novel receptors that compete with the classic second generation CAR that most people are using. It's called the Artemis receptor. And so we were developing cars against intracellular targets and also using this novel receptor to try and, and improve on the signaling and the activity and, and the efficacy of cars. Being employee 24 and being in preclinical development, I got exposed to all the, the work that needs to occur for a drug to go to the clinic. And one of the advantages of, of a startup, and I'm at a startup again now and I really love it, is that opportunity that there isn't exactly a person or a department responsible for every function that a company needs. So if you are 
full of energy and love to learn and capable and, and kind of know how to figure things out, you can end up doing a lot more than your job description. Um, and so in a few years at Eureka, I was able to be part of the scientific development of those products, their preclinical development, the regulatory work that went into getting them towards the clinic, the CMC work to create a cell manufacturing process and tech transfer it to a CMO, and actually starting the clinical trials all the way to being in, the, in a bunny suit and manufacturing the first patient product for one of our trials which is a, an amazing experience. So it was, it was really fun. And we were a relatively small and lean company. The, the science was very rigorous, but it wasn't glamorous uh, and we weren't well-known or famous. I do think the science is incredible, Eureka. And that's the success that comes out right now and a lot of their very strong collaborations. Eventually, a lot of the technology developed at Eureka is in the clinic and doing well. Um, but it, it took a lot of time and it wasn't like being part of a, you know, a big successful company where everybody knows exactly what they're doing. It was challenging on many levels, but a highly recommended experience for people who are innovative and like to figure things out. They're okay without a process or a protocol for everything. So there's a lot of opportunity there to own how things are done and to to, to kind of forge the path for developing a product and really feel part of the success. That's so exciting. So I'm, I'm going to skip over some of the work that we did together at Altius, just because I think it's probably almost too familiar for us. We're going to use a lot of acronyms, <laughs> but <laughs> I want to jump ahead to Umoja because there was this time period where you were starting to think about your next step in your career and um, having attended a few conferences with you, I know that you are extremely good at networking and you know a lot of people in the field. And I think you had a lot of options and, and opportunities available to you. And then one day I heard that you were joining this new startup, Umoja, here in Seattle. So what kind of led you to learn about Umoja or their science and led to that decision? Yeah, it's a, it was a multifaceted decision. And we're not, we won't, we don't need to talk about our days together at Altius, but it should be mentioned that the reason I live in Seattle and perhaps the reason that I was available for a role at Umoja is that I moved up here from the Bay Area because of your work at Altius. <laughs> it was phenomenal work that was really worth developing. So that aside, Umoja had a very, has a very different approach to CAR T cell therapy. They, they want to engineer the CAR T cells in the body of the patient. The, that scientific idea just grabbed me. It's a really interesting challenge scientifically. It sounds like almost like a dream. You know, if it works, it will be incredible. You can just inject a patient pretty much anywhere in the world with a virus preparation that is safe and directed towards their T cells and engineers their immune system against cancer. So um, the science was very attractive. But the real reason, besides the fact that I wanted to stay in Seattle, I was heavily networking at the time, and I had a few job offers in Boston and in places where, you know, all the big car T companies are. But I, I was interested in understanding from the ground up how a business is built. I have, I don't actually, I was never an entrepreneur myself, but I was starting to have aspirations for that, and particularly for, for the culture piece. 
for the operations of a, of a company, but also the culture. I wanted to build a place that I wanted to work at, where everybody wanted to work at, when, where people have fun, where people are collaborative, where there's transparency, people are encouraged to develop themselves and to be authentic. And when I met the founders of Umoja, that resonated very deeply. And that was really the, the straw that, that made the difference. Um, Andy Schoenberg is just such a down-to-earth person. There's no way that he can be pretentious or, uh, or anything bad. He's just uh, a really genuine person and the, the other founders as well. And they agreed with my cultural philosophy and really actually wanted to bring me on board to, to plant that seed and, and build a positive culture. And we're hoping, we're hoping to be a model for culture in biotech. There are a lot of companies in biotech that have good culture that draw really creative people, but we, we really want to take it to the next level in terms of how transparent we are and, and how everybody in the company has the right to speak up and say what they think and it's encouraged actively. So that's how it started. Maybe yeah. I'm, I'm blabbing a little bit. <laughs> I want to unpack that a little bit. So, okay. you know, I think similarly, we're probably aware of some of these companies, I would say Bluebird comes to mind. Their, their cultural values are very, you know, upfront on their website, the, the be creative, be collaborative. Mm -hmm. And I think Culture is obviously extremely important because we spend so much of our time at work, right? And it's really um, a dedicated effort uh, amongst a group of people and really a community. On top of that, you know, culture, I think very in the early days of a startup is very easy to kind of form, but it's hard to maintain. So can you share, because how big was Umoja when you joined? I was the second employee. Okay. Um, officially, and we are now close to 65. Um, wow. we, might, we might be 70 already. I think we have a couple new people every week, so it's hard to keep track. So how, how do you kind of maintain those cultural ideals that you had in those early days now that you, you guys are a much bigger mm -hmm. organization? I, I, I really agree with you. And it's a challenge that we talk about a lot. When you're small, it's like a little family. Everybody can meet in the same room. So transparency is not even an issue, right? Communication, everybody knows everything. But when you grow, it's not the case. And one of the things that I see as a key player is the, is the leadership, the messaging from the top. The fact that Andy does care about this so much and so do the other operational founders and leadership team. We have a weekly meeting where the company just gets together for like a weekly recap that's run by the leadership team. And so many times I've heard again and again, the messaging of speak up if you have any thoughts or if you want to challenge me, like if there's a company-wide presentation and the CEO says something and some technician says, no, I think it's different. There's a lively discussion. Like that's the way we are. So it's, it's the leadership is presenting that and backing it up. And it actually is occurring. People can see that it's safe to speak up, that it's safe to be who you are. We also put specific committees in place to help with that. So we have cultural committees and DNI, which is a buzzword these days. We're, we're, we're doing it because we really care about psychological safety and everybody feeling inclu included and, and able to speak up. And that's across all kinds of types of diversity. And we have a professional development committee and all of these committees are just volunteers from the company that are interested in, in these kind of topics. And there's a lot of support from the leadership to 
fund and sponsor and participate in, in any activity that these committees create. I think that's, maybe that will be hard to keep together as we go to 200 or 300 or 500, right? There's, there's are, there are huge numbers of employees and eventually maybe it won't work to have a company-wide Zoom <laughs> chat where people can actually interact. Um, but if we keep the communication flowing and the messaging from the leadership consistent and, and we hire people that align with those values, I think that's, I guess, the, the last piece that I would add that's, that's really important to us is we, we pass anybody that wants to join Umoja through uh, an asshole test or a filter of type. We call it the asshole test, but it can be called something else to, to make sure that we're hiring people that have the same values. And it's really important to us. If people don't care about culture, then they're also not that attractive to us. Like we want the people that care about culture that will come to Umoja because they resonate with what we project. Maybe that's the, the secret ingredient, but that's also a huge effort that HR and everybody needs to coordinate that so that the hiring remains consistently True high to those values. And so now you guys had a, you, you kind of came out of stealth mode. What, when did you guys come out of stealth mode? November last year, I think was the first coming out of stealth. And then earlier this year, I think there was, you know, more news releases around the series A um, mm -hmm. completion. And your website yes. went online, which is very beautiful. So you, you, you as a company shared some of those values. I was wondering if you could walk us through what you guys landed on as far as the like shared values and what they kind of mean to you. I, we have a big like slide with a bunch of corporate values that I think were mostly stolen from Amazon, to be honest, but you know, <laughs> reworded and uh, repurposed. Um, but what I did since I, you know, that's part of the privilege of being one of the first people at the company. I took the word Umoja and I wrote out a value for each letter. And that is actually what is mostly messaged to the company because it's, you know, five words that you can read. It was unconventional thinking. I'm forgetting what M is right now. No worries. <laughs> um, obsessed with results, authentic in all of our interactions, a joyful environment of fun and collaboration. Just the M, I can't remember what that is right now. But that is um, a short snippet of the values so again it was around being obsessed with results and have unconventional thinking being having very high standards but also a fun environment and being authentic love it i love those i i definitely i love the obsessed with results and you know joyful environment i think that's something you definitely you know bring to any company that you're at where you you enjoy celebrating the wins, but you're really focused and driven and really show up every day and are dedicated to getting those results. So I think that's great. <laughs> celebrating the wins is important. Yeah. So if you can, and I, you know, obviously I'm aware of how, how much we can and can't share within some of these organizations, but have there been any like really great days since you joined Emoja that you can, can share with us just some mm -hmm. highlights? Oh, there have been for sure. When we first started, it was very challenging for me. I think that's, I mean, being obsessed with results and, and having a, a joyful environment, those things have to come together or else you give up. 
I, science we all know is a whole bunch of failures and repetitions before you get somewhere. And, and we started off with, with a sequence of failures with not being able to reproduce the data that we obtained from our you know, scientific founders, academic labs, and also trying to build our own models and our own viral products at the time and having a lot of false starts and failed starts. And there was a moment where a very talented scientist that we hired redesigned the surface plasmid that expresses a couple things on the on the virus particles that we were using to try to get T cells to transduce in the absence of any stimulation. And it just worked. That that was an amazing time for all of us. I think that also launched the rest of the company's future success. And that is the design that is going to go into the clinic. Uh, so being part of the team that that did that was really exciting. He's the one who designed it, but we were a team, you know, figuring out how to what to adjust, how to build the model, um, and and made that work. I mean, that's that's a classic story in drug development. There's so many failures before you succeed, and, and those successes can be so profound when when things do work. Um, it works amazingly well. So yeah, we still celebrate that as as often as we can, and there. There were, was a moment recently when our CEO was giving talk. He was giving us a, a practice talk about how he talks to investors. And he was highlighting data from my team. Um, I manage the, the in vivo team, so to speak, the translational team that does a lot of animal studies. And our product is an in vivo T-cell targeting product. So a lot of the development occurs in animal models. And he pretty much put some value some money value on some of the data that my team uh, generated explaining like how he's raised funds based on this data and how this is creating an inflection point for the company and my team was just so happy I mean, to hear that and we were all just glowing we we it was in the middle of covid and we couldn't like go out and celebrate and have drinks together but just knowing that your work is bringing value to the company. And also that value is gonna turn around and generate the income or the financing that we need to continue the work and develop this to bring value to patients, which is the ultimate goal. Uh, that was also a moment of celebration. And then we've had like a few failed mouse experiments since, <laughs> but every once in a while, there's a great piece of data that, that pushes our programs and the company forward. Um, awesome. So you recently presented at ASGCT and you're a regular presenter at conferences. Something that I kind of admire about you because I, I just love being able to see you actually present at these different conferences. Do you have advice for other scientists out there who are not maybe not presenting their research as much, especially those in industry where they're often a little bit more limited as far as what they can speak about? Yeah, I... I really love presenting, um, but that also was something I developed throughout my career. I, I was kind of had stage fright like any other person initially. Um, after the first couple opportunities that I went to meetings and gave a poster, whenever meetings, some types of meetings like to network with industry to find out what they're interested in. These are more the industry meetings. I responded to those people and I was always nice to them. So maybe that's the first tip. Be nice to people. Give a little bit of your time when somebody is researching a topic. Like th these are the conference organizers. They want to research what, you know, what is the field thinking about? Give them 10 minutes of your time. Then they come around and, and turn and ask you to present at their meeting. 
And once that starts, it's a rolling ball um, and it becomes, you, you become kind of known in the meeting circuit. And by then people have seen you talk and they think you give a good talk or, and, and it just kind of spreads. So I, I get a lot of requests. I'm approached by a lot of conferences to give talks. It's no, it's no longer something that I have to actively put an effort into. I actually have to say no, especially now that a lot of talks are pre-recorded and virtual and I don't enjoy that. But it all started from being willing to help them out. And that's maybe a general message for networking to be open to helping others. And it helps if you are an extrovert like me and you're kind of generally friendly and like people. I can always find something in common with a person. Even if I don't feel like getting to know a, a new person, I can find something in common or something that we could do for each other. Um, and that has helped me a lot in my career because having a rich network is a, is a huge way to access information and share information. It also gives you job security and job opportunity. Um, so networking is a huge part. Helping others is part of that. I think the best part about networking is doing little favors for each other. On the topic of networking, you organize or, or help organize a monthly call focused on CAR T-cell therapies. Can you tell us how you got involved in that? I think it's a really incredible collaborative environment and there's many kind of leaders in this space that are on the call and really sharing information in an effort to help each other um, move these various therapies into the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy that you're asking about that. I'm afraid that after the people see this podcast, we'll get a hundred new participants because we are open to any, you know, to any company who wants to participate. I wasn't the founder of this group, but I was a very early member of the group. The group is called the CAR T Consortium. And it was very, it was started in early 2015 by the representatives of CAR-T development from Kite, Novartis, and Juno. So it was literally a, co a collaboration between the three competitors. At that time, those three companies were competing with each other very strongly to be the first to get their C19 CAR programs at the clinic. In the middle of all that competition, people that were responsible for safety and the preclinical development of these products got together and decided to align on what makes a, a safe CAR T-cell therapy. I, I just think it's a beautiful concept. When I joined in 2015, it was just about 10 people. And now we're about 100 different companies and some academics and some regulatory representatives and consultants. It's quite a large group that spans big pharma, biotech, startups, all kinds of companies in the space of T-cell engineering. And the purpose remained the same, it, to share pre-competitive information that will help us all make safer products, knowing that accelerating the development of safer products will be better for the patients and for the companies and for everybody in the field. So everybody benefits from it. And it is a very open forum. I mean, we are sometimes very often limited in being in a company with what we can share. But so we get around that by sharing example data or, or bringing up questions for discussion instead of sharing actual, you know, proprietary data or confidential data. Um, but over the years, there's been really great learnings from this group and a lot, it's, it's, it's its own network that helps you also find certain expertise or answer certain questions and get recommendations for how to tackle a project or a problem. Um, it's I love that model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's such a great 
thing that's going on in, in our space. I'm curious if you have been involved at all with Biotech Clubhouse or if you've been on some of the Clubhouse calls that I think are kind of in the same vein as far as the collaborative environment. No, I haven't. I haven't heard of that. I've heard there's Biosafe and there's a few other organizations that I have been a, a guest um, at, but not Clubhouse. I should look it up. <laughs> I haven't been super involved, but it's, it's yeah. you know, it, it, it's become, I think they have a regular biotech call on Sundays and there's a number of leaders in the space that kind of join and, and share info and advice. So moving on, I, I mentioned earlier, you really love serving as a mentor to your community. You're involved in a few organizations with the goal of, of mentoring others. Can you, can you tell us about what some of those organizations are and any kind of highlights or how people can um, get involved or benefit from, from things like Ooh. women in bio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I get to plug some of the things that I care about. I, I deeply care about diversity in our industry in general, but one of the things that struck me when I was climbing the ladder was how few women were there with me on the ladder. And, and there were times at Eureka Therapeutics when I went to a meeting at like a, a big pharma, we, I won't name names, and I would be the only woman in like a room with 20 men. And it happened all the time. It still happens. And so I got early early in my career, really curious about what is preventing more women from getting into science and also progressing and staying in science and, and getting all the way to the leadership. I wanted to see more, more female energy at the top. So I, I got involved with uh, Women in Bio and also the American Association for Women in Science back when I was in the Bay Area. I created my own lean-in groups. I joined a mentoring program called WINGS and I still support them and as, a, as an advocate they're um, a mentoring, a nonprofit mentoring group that's just geared to support women careers, not in science necessarily. And I was greatly influenced by the mentoring program that I had there. Um, and I'm also part of HBA now as well, uh, which is another organization, the Healthcare Business Women Association, that provides mentoring programs and networking opportunities and educational opportunities to support women in their career. Uh, so it's focused on women, but it's not you know, the only thing. Well, it's a great place to, to focus if you're a woman <laughs> and you're in leadership in, in science. And WIB Seattle is such a great organization. It's a completely volunteer-based. We're all just giving our time. We're all very passionate about helping each other and others succeed. The pandemic has put a dent on, on us being able to meet together and network, but instead the organization made every everything virtual across the nation, every WIB event is accessible to all members. And there was a lot of good content around how to present yourself in a, in a talk. And you record yourself and they had all these workshops. They had a lot of DNI topics this year. So it's just been an enormous, enormously beneficial organization to be part of. And I recently started a mentoring program in my own company. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, to follow up on that. And that was really fun. I got to do matchmaking and match mentees and mentors for an internal program at Umoja. I love that. Have there been any scientific leaders out there that really inspire you or, or have inspired you over the years? One of the, I don't know her personally, but Margot Roberts, the reason I was inspired by her, I, I saw, I met her at, in 2015 at a 
at one of the smallest CAR-T conferences because nobody was really doing CAR-T yet. It was very early days. And I fell in love with her hair. <laughs> and I already had short blonde hair then, so disclaimer. But she had this chic cut. She was She's just a badass, cool woman and a pioneer in the field. Before the field was cool or successful or lucrative or anything, she was working on engineered T-cell therapies for HIV. Um, so she's she's a role model. She's she does a lot of good things. Yeah, you, you know her. You actually know her personally. Probably. I worked with her at Lyle, and I think the first first time I met her was when we were in our very small little second floor space. We had like this tiny conference room, and she was sitting in there waiting, and she had her like gorgeous. And it <laughs> you was know what I'm talking like, about, yeah, blue or purple at the time, and she had this like scarf on with like a leather jacket. <laughs> very stylish and you know yeah she she was someone who Carl June recently kind of gave a shout out at the beginning of his talk at ASGCT as one yeah, of the the I pioneers in the CAR T cell space and she you know certainly helped advance the field and really I mean basically was one of the people involved in converting what was a research grade T cell therapy to something that could be manufactured and translating that you know, very research level science to something that could be scaled. So yeah, she's, she's certainly a pioneer in the space and love her yeah. hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I have a question kind of more of a nerdy overarching question about the CAR T cell space, because I think that since the early days of what you've spoken about, you know, starting out in 2015 and there not being a lot of people in the space, to today, it has really exploded. And there's now what probably hundreds of companies focused mm -hmm. on the next generation of these cellular therapies. And I, you know, having dabbled in the field, certainly appreciate that it's very, it can be very powerful for some of these cancers and, and autoimmune diseases. What do you think the field's going to look like in 10 years? And do you think there will be a pivot kind of back to more traditional therapies that maybe are less expensive to manufacture or, or what do you see mm. in the future for this space? Yeah, I, I love the question. I, I like everybody else fell in love with cell therapy is, is a concept. And, but like everyone else that's actually in the field noticed the limitations quite rapidly. Um, and there are issues with the business model being sustainable but i i even and i'm also maybe a little bit biased because you know umoja is part of a, a few companies that are already thinking into the future to where a cell therapy is not really the, the drug modality we're going to reach the same target we're going to have engineered t-cells in the end but we're delivering it as a virus rather as rather than a cell therapy so it doesn't need to be manufactured in the lab it removes all those logistics I think the cell therapy field will stay. I think some autologous and allogeneic products will end up being very successful. But I think what's really here to stay is the concept of immunotherapy, not necessarily the modality of engineering cells ex vivo, but the idea of engineering your immune cells to fight cancer for you, right? This is no longer a direct tumor targeted drug. It's actually targeting the immune system, which then is awakened, so to speak, and, and enabled to target your cancer. 
that will, is here to stay for sure. And we need, we have a lot more to learn to make that effect, effective and to make that more widely available towards various different types of cancer and overcome the fact that solid tumors really do block the immune system in many ways. So that's where I think the field will be. So in 10 years, it will look differently, but it would still be involving the same cells. Do you think we will in the near term overcome the the challenges of targeting solid tumors with these types of therapies? I think there is hope. I know that it's a it's a twisted way to say that there's hope and then mention a negative story, but there was a, in a new a news release, you know, a week or so ago from um, Timunity um, that they had a couple of deaths from neurotoxicity in their trial against PSMA. But the the data from that trial was amazingly promising before those deaths occurred. So there is already some progress, some real potent. CAR T-cell therapies against a solid tumor marker in, in, in a very aggressive prostate cancer. So yes, there is hope from a scientific perspective. We have to figure out how to make these things safer or how to prevent those uh, accelerated immune inflammation reactions that go overboard. I think that's one of the first signals that we could, that it could work against solid tumors too. That's really exciting. Do you have any suggestions for what you know these scientists are looking for as far as how to make them safer there is already a quite a lot of work in the field to create either a safety switch or a suicide switch which is not the ideal way because you sort of lose your your drug at that point you're, you're trying to just block it. it there are other types of control that are being engineered where you either control the activity or you control the, the recognition of the tumor antigen. I mean, we are, we are, you're not asking me a leading question about Umoja, huh? Because like, no. one of the, no. I was maybe. just, I honestly curious what your thoughts were because it, no, it is, but I, I don't want to be, I don't want to only. It's a hotly Umoja. debated thing, right? Because yeah. we all know that these types of cellular therapies are very powerful and, and they often in, as you mentioned, can have these toxic side effects. And so from the safety perspective, again, it's you know a real driver for us as scientists to figure out something that is going to have the best of both worlds. It's going yes. to have this yeah. on-tumor specificity and it's going to not wreak havoc on other systems in, in the patient. Yeah, so one of the approaches is safety switches. And again, I don't think they're ideal because they sort of completely stop the activity of your drug unless you can find a reversible switch. Another approach which Umoja is using for our solid tumor programs is using a, a car that's universal and then applying an adapter. And you can control and titrate the level of adapter that you put in. So if you're seeing toxic effects, you withdraw it completely or you even replace it with a blocking adapter that doesn't recognize the tumor antigen in order to really just stop the reaction. So we're not the only ones with universal cars. That's also another approach. There's also all the synthetic biology being worked on to create cars that are, they have switches for being, for being turned on and off. So you can have full control of when your cars are on and off. And there's also the need for developing better preclinical models so that we don't have to discover this in the clinic. I mean, that's so tragic and it's so heartbreaking for anyone working on a, a novel therapeutic to actually have those kind of situations happen in the clinic where you lose the patient. So that's my field. And I am trying, we are always trying to find better preclinical models that would help us understand that. 
but immunotherapy is specifically challenging in that regard. And we haven't been able to accurately model cytokine release syndrome, neurotoxicity, and other types of toxicity in animals, not, not very efficiently yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's really kind of an unfortunate aspect of the, the field. And I, I'm, I'm glad you're working on that because I think I agree, you know, we could really use some better models and testing. Once you get into the space of testing cars in vitro or even in vivo in the mouse models, it gives us some sense of how, how they're performing, but it, it really doesn't give us the full picture of what's going to happen when that, that cell is in a patient. So, so I want to I get back to one question about Umoja because again, you've been there through from being the second employee to now you know, a group of, of 70 or so employees and you spent some time back at the bench. Now you're leading a pretty big team. How do you kind of deal with such a dynamic environment and things changing so quickly? I think communication is probably the most important thing. And that, that kind of just sounds like a, a cliche answer. But as things start moving and becoming dynamic, you need to communicate about them because people become uncertain like there's there's shifts in roles and responsibilities as you grow all of a sudden you have a new boss because when you're hiring there's also more layers being introduced and your responsibilities change and communicating about it as much as you can and that creates a situation in my life where i have a lot of meetings just to keep the alignment and the communication cycle going nonstop. So I guess one of the big challenge for me is to find a way to be very efficient with meetings so that I'm not just spending all my life in meetings. <laughs> um, and, and that's part of communication too, is like having best practices for meetings and, and a philosophy around that that uh, I, we recently were working on at Umoja. Um, and having the messaging that if, if you're uncomfortable, you speak up, or if you have questions, speak up and always assume best intentions. I think that is not trivial because we there is friction as a company grows and there's just so many new people coming in and, and things are happening that kind of throw people off. If you always assume best intentions and communicate, it usually you can you learn to love the, the growth process and the new avenues of research that are enabled by it, the new expertise that are brought in. You see all the benefits of the dynamic growth instead of being disturbed by it. Absolutely. So, so getting back to mentoring and advice, what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah, I, I love that question. My younger self was really, really lacked confidence as a person and probably on a very deep level lacked self-worth at some stage. And was trying to compensate for that with perfectionism and, and very high standards and extremely high you know, work ethic. And I wasn't very happy. I was very hardworking, really obsessed with success and really down on myself for any failure. And I already spoke about my philosophy now, which is like, yeah, you, know, you wanna remain creative and persistent, but have fun because we're solving tough problems and there's always going to be failure. But that wasn't my mindset when I was much younger. 
And I, I would spend a lot of time crying, like every Friday, I think, <laughs> at the end of my week, you know, I get the results of an experiment that took a whole week or something, I would just spend the day crying. Uh, I, was, I was very sensitive to failure. I took it all so personally. I would give my younger self and, and anybody out there that has similar issues with themselves um, a little bit of encouragement, you know, that failure is part of the story, especially if you choose a career in science. It doesn't reflect on you personally. You only need to persist and remain optimistic and creative and take away some of that extra stress and pressure of perfectionism. And, and you might also enjoy your work <laughs> and people will enjoy working with you more too. <laughs> if you're not a, a, a just raging lunatic stress case all the time. <laughs> I love that. I think that's great advice. Well, we have really sped through these questions. There are all kinds of things that I love talking about. And yeah. I, it's fun talking with you. And I may, maybe I made my answers <clears throat> too concise. Uh, but no, no, I, it was great. <laughs> sometimes, okay, <good>. sometimes <laughs> interviews go really quickly through the questions. And sometimes, you know, they're a little bit more winding. So it's but, just... but this is so fitting. This is so me. I'm, I'm, I'm a very efficient person. <laughs> I and... actually thought that it would go this way. <laughs> I try to be direct. That's my personality and concise. So if I, I, if there's an answer that comes to mind, you know, just go with it and not to ramble on forever, which I, you know, I could do. I have a tendency to do that um, with friends. <laughs> it's easy to slip into that. Um, I thought your questions were great. I, I loved learning from your other podcasts about other people's careers and, and lives and their thoughts. Um, and so I hope that this conversation is interesting to other people and, and inspiring. And maybe to just circle back to the mentoring, people at any stages of their career could benefit from mentoring and from people who have learned to, to be a good leader and to care for others, right? A good leader is a person that empowers others, everybody around them. And it's not about your own success or your own achievements. Um, and I would encourage anybody that doesn't have a mentor to loop into organizations like WIB and HBA, and, and there's a bunch of others out there to find a network, to find some support. Those tend to be really important, especially at challenging times or when you're switching careers or when trying to make decisions. It's great to have a little bit of a support network that's not just your friends, that's more professional. I think that's great advice. I saw, you know, I followed Paul Graham on, on Twitter, who's kind of this father entrepreneur from Silicon Valley. And some, somebody had tweeted, uh, what advice do you have for an entrepreneur in despair? And he mm -hmm. said, reach out and find collaborators because that community is going to help lift you up. And I, I think that's very much in line with your, your sentiment there. Yeah. And, and for me, it was about girlfriends in the space for a while. Like the first lean in group that I created was so important to me. I was just a research scientist at the time. And we shared information about like how much we are paid, how to ask for a promotion, a promotion, or, you know, are we allowed to ask questions about stock options? Like just some things that sometimes women are shy to ask or don't think are appropriate. By the way, men usually ask those things all the time or just demand that information. <laughs> and having a group of women um, that all share that information in a really 
comfortable and safe space really helped me at the time. Like by, by now, I think I have a lot, enough resources and experience and confidence to advocate for myself and to ask the right questions. But in your early stages of career, it's not always there. So get some support. Yeah, I love that. I have one other more science-related question for you about ASGCT. So I was just curious if you had any takeaways or, or you know, points that you thought were exciting that came out of um, different companies and, and some of the research that was presented. Oh, that's my, my answer is going to be so sad, Jocelyn, because the platform didn't cooperate. And I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't really attend uh, very many meetings. Okay. I, I love the organization. And you and I were at to the ASGCT two years ago together. Yeah. Before the pandemic. Oh, my God. We had such a great time. That was so fun. It's a great meeting. And I, and I love it. But they had a lot of platform challenges this year that made it, it really inconvenient to try and, and tap in. So what I did is went to the the electronic presentations afterwards to some of them and the poster that mm-hmm. were available. And that was always fun. The main reason to go for me was to, you know, check on, on our competitors like Sana Therapeutics and see what they're doing in the in vivo CAR T engineering space and, uh, and check out manufacturing talks about antivirus mm-hmm. stuff that might not be interesting to your audience. So I did get some value from it, but I think we all really miss in-person conferences. There's something about being in the room, being able to see your audience, you know, live and asking questions live that I really hope is back next year, early next year. (laughs) Me too. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Can't wait for that. Well, I'll have to send you, I took some notes on some of my takeaways and I'll, I'll send that over. Oh, that's awesome. You were such a good note taker too. (laughs) I remember relying almost entirely on your notes and you know, pictures and slides that you had from the, from the meeting. You're such a diligent researcher. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I like I enjoy doing that. So for some for whatever reason, I like putting together my my conference notes and yeah. shared it with well, you know few folks from. It's so actually, important to learn what other people are doing. That that's how we actually keep learning, and it's it's more fun to go to a conference and watch talks than to write read papers. But I, I really miss the live interaction around that just ends up being absorbed in a better format. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I wanted to recall something that you, you had shared, you know, we were just chatting after work one day recently, and you were talking about how important you think culture is for an organization, but you've obviously been really driven by the science. And I think are really passionate about Umoja's science and what you guys have the potential to change in this industry when you're not bragging. <laughs> modestly, yeah. modestly, <laughs> very modestly said that, you know, your company might not be the ones to move the, you know, to get that clinical trial approval or FDA approval but you might help move the needle in, in yeah. this field. And I think that was like, I would, I would, I would even reframe that a little bit to say, I, I do hope that we are, we, we are collecting all the talent and, and enjoying so much the problem solving, but it doesn't, maybe it's a terrible thing to say, but it doesn't terribly matter to me, the personal success. What matters to me even the personal success of the company doesn't matter as much as the influence on the field as well and bringing science forward. 
because the immunotherapies that work now were built on the shoulders of giants, right? That's, that's real. There's years and years of research that goes into understanding the immune system that then can be capitalized on to create a drug. So what we're building will contribute to that knowledge so that one day immunotherapy will be available to everyone and maybe cancer will be eradicated. It would be a dream because right now, as of today, a close friend of mine's father passed away from cancer. A friend of mine found out today that she has cervical cancer and an old friend from Israel is almost dying from a very late stage colon cancer. Like this is just all around us. Yeah. I wish, yeah, I hope that in the future, all of these people get a second chance on life and we can beat this one. Uh, so that's the, that was the main messaging of that, of that modesty is that, yes, it's not about our gain. It's none of the people at Umoja care that much about personal gain. It's mm -hmm. people that go into science generally don't go in it for the money <laughs> or yeah. the fame. Uh, there's better ways to, to get rich and famous. Mm -hmm. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, I think that's a great, great place to, to wrap up our conversation. I just want to say thank you, Sean, for taking the time to share your experience with our listeners. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story that you have as far as your journey from academia to Eureka to uh, helping to found Umoja and now growing this wonderful company and culture and really with the mission of curing cancer. I think it's, it's awesome what you're doing. So thank you I so feel, much. I feel so lucky. It is such a privilege to, to be in this position. And thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, and it's, it's fun. It's just really fun to talk to you. You're, you're an amazing interviewer and you're exposing a lot of female scientists' careers to, to your audience and inspiring them on a regular basis. It's a lot of work. I don't know if people understand how much work you put into this <laughs> behind the scene. It's incredible. And you have, you are a leading scientist at a very important startup as well. So thanks. So Good much. luck. Yeah. <laughs> That wraps up my interview with my friend, Dr. Sean Green. I hope you learned a lot from this episode of Lady Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and showing your support. We'll see you next time.